Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Just before we start my interview with Yanina Fay, um, one of the things I want to talk about is the episode prior to this, episode 90, was the first episode of Hammerama with Horror of Dracula slash Dracula being the one that Alistair and I talked about. And if you're wondering what Hammerama is about, one, you can listen to that episode, but also to give you a feel for what it is, I'm going to play the promo now, and you'll get an idea what it's about. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hemorama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely. And of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of Hammer Hard from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film Vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique and unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that promo, and I just want to remind everybody that the Rondo Awards are is up, and we're got nominated for Best Podcast category. And if you want to vote for us, you know, go to our Facebook page. It's a pin note explaining how to vote for the Rondo Awards. A lot of other people that have been on the show have been nominated for different Rondos, so you can feel free to look at the ballot and vote for those people. Vote where your heart tells you to vote. Uh, the other thing I want to tell you, I'm about to start the interview, is I was going to edit this part out of the interview where um, before I started the interview, I forgot to ask Yanina, Yanina how to pronounce her name, and she explains how to pronounce her name, and I was going to edit that part out, but after talking to Alistair, or Al, um, he said to me that a lot of people don't pronounce the name correctly, so I felt like I'm just going to leave it in there, so that way you have her explaining how to pronounce her name correctly. I'm probably still messing it up now, but this way you'll have exactly how she says it. Um, I'm known as the butcher of names sometimes. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. I know I enjoyed talking to her so much, and I'll talk to you after the interview. Bye. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today I'm going to be interviewing, I should have asked you this prior. I'm going to edit this. How do you say your first name? Yanina. 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 It's, it's Polish. And my father was a Polish pilot, one of those daredevil pilots. So my name is Yanina. My original name was Schmigelska. Okay. I'm not going to ask you to repeat that. Okay. So it's Yanina. It's spelled with a J, but pronounced with a Y. I'm joined today by Yanina Fay, who, as most of you know, to follow Hammer Films, is in Dracula, The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, Never Take Sweets from a Stranger. And for those that also remember one of my favorite horror films, The Day of the Triffids. We're going to talk about those movies and other movies and also some theater. How are you doing today, Miss Faye? I'm doing very well, thank you. 
I'm glad we're out of this terrible two years of stuck inside. I feel feel now we're, we're pulling out of it, and I hope everybody there is too. And that's what I'm loving it. During this pandemic, I've been able to, the one good thing, I've been able to interview people to so people can actually hear these stories when they can't get out to the different conventions and that kind of stuff. I know you've been to America a few times to do conventions, not that many, but at least two or three times. And usually you're, I think the United Kingdom, you're like a fixture on the convention circuit, except for the last couple of years. And this will give people a chance that haven't seen you or heard you to get some of these stories. Well, I've only actually been to America a couple of times and that was, that was not, not because I didn't want to, it's because nobody ever asked me. I remember at one convention I was in Manchester and somebody said to me, oh, Miss Bay, why have you never been to America? And I said, because nobody ever asked me. <laughs> I said, I'd be happy to go. Uh, which is, you know, it seems strange, but that's it. You know, nobody ever asked me to go. Um, and I don't even know, I think it was due to um, the lovely Caroline Munro. And she said to me, you mean you really ought to go? We were in Manchester together should you really ought to go to America I said yeah well Caroline let them ask me and maybe I'll go so yeah and I think uh, I think actually your convention was the first one I did out there because I did do chiller but I think that was after yours yeah well, the, the one that, yeah no that was the, the convention you're referring to for people listeners was monster bash back in uh, 2018 I think that would yeah that that yeah because we've had this this two-year gap you know we've actually i've actually lost two years so yeah that would have been it but i haven't been since um and it would be difficult to go at the moment with um with things still being a a little bit difficult with the virus going around but i'm hoping to go again one day one day i hope so too i want to see you i want to see you come again i want people to you were so nice to everybody that was there at the convention and welcoming and I, i think people it's one thing hearing the interview, but it's another thing when you get that in-person experience. So hopefully it'll get a chance to do that part also. Well, I think that works both ways. You know, if people, if people are nice to you and people appreciate the fact that you're, and there were so many people who'd come especially to see me and I couldn't believe it. I said, what do you mean you've come? I've come especially to see you today, Miss Bay. You know, that means something. It means people are actually appreciating the fact that you've, you know, you've done some work that they've watched and enjoyed. It works both ways. That's that's the one nice thing about actors like yourself who come to the convention, because not every actor does, and they understand the whole thing is you're getting love, they're they're getting love, everybody has this um, appreciation for each other and to get a chance to um, talk about what you did in the past and the, what you're planning on doing in the future and other things like that. So it's always good things to have. It, um, for me, um, looking back is quite difficult. You, you would also appreciate that when I started my career, it was in 1958. And so, you know, when people say to me, so, Miss Faye, can you tell us all about this? And can you t-? It's really quite hard. You know, there are certain things that stay in my memory, but there's been so much after that, you know, we television and theatre and there's so much piled on top of all that stuff from 1958 and through the 60s that you know I really have to stop and think quite and I, tr- I try hard to remember for the sake of you know the people who want want to know about it but it's not 
And to be honest, I have learned more about the work that I've done uh, in films like Dracula and films like um, Triffids from from people who come to the conventions and they show me stuff. And I, you know, I had no, I had no, I had no idea the history about it. And and reading various interviews, there's a great guy here who has done a lot of work. Wayne Kinsley, you may have heard of him. He's done a lot of a lot of uh, interesting books on Hammer. And the history of Hammer has really come to me through other people. Because when you're 10 years old, you know, you just don't do the job. You don't really know what's going on. But the history of it has come from the fans. Exactly. So it's kind of like everybody's learning from each other. But before we get into your theater work, what was it like growing up in England post-war? Because I believe um, your your dad was a pilot for um, the RFA. My- my 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 father was a was a one of those daring Polish maniac pilots, <laughs> and in fact he won the Polish DC. Um, apparently, my mother said she never knew what he was doing until he came back. He was shot down several times for flying over enemy territory. I mean, you know, don't, don't let's go there at the moment with all this stuff going on in Ukraine. But he was, um, yeah, that's what he did. And then he decided to settle here because he said he would never go back to Poland um, because of the devastation that was caused during the war there. So, and he met my mother, who's English. Um, he was stationed at Northolt, uh, the Polish airbase in Northolt, and he met my mother dancing. They went, they they went together and they were dancing. Um, and he decided to stay here. Sorry, what was your original question there? Oh, it's just like, what was it like growing up after, you know, because oh, right. post-war and, and you yeah. know, before you started all your acting? Yeah, yeah. So, they, I mean, so we were just a very uh, normal sort of middle-class family. And and my father, my father wanted to stay in the Air Force, but he wasn't, he wasn't uh, recommissioned into the RAF. Um and there was a lot to do with, you know, the, the Poles did an awful lot to win the war. But anyway, we won't go into that. That's too political. Um, and so when he when he decided to stay here, they offered him dentistry. And he said he didn't want to look down people's mouths all the time. And then he went into uh, upholstery. So he was just a working class, we were a working class family. And, and in those days, uh, women didn't. Well, my mother didn't work and he didn't want her to work. Um, uh, and we was, I was sent to a normal school. I have a, an older brother, and we both went to a, just an ordinary little primary school. Um, and then, um, I suppose like most little girls, I wanted I, I wanted to dance. Um, so I just went to a little ballet school. And for some reason, that school closed down, and I, I don't know. I can't remember. I was only five or six when that happened. And my mother said, well, it's such a shame. You know, she's, she's obviously got some talent to dance. Why don't we try somewhere else? So there was another school in uh, not far away. In those days, no cars. You had to go on a bus. My mother took me to uh, a school called the Corona Academy in Chiswick. And it, that was run by three ladies who were originally called Corona Bains. Uh, and they ran this theatre school. And this one lady who, who sort of took over the drama side of things called Rona, the head of the school, apparently went to my mother one day and said, you know, this child really has got some talent in, in performing. Um, would you like her to do something? 
And because my parents weren't terribly well off, that the the main school it wasn't just the Saturday school. The main school cost money, and um, my mum said, "Well, I don't think we can afford it." But she went home, spoke to my father, and my father said, "Oh no, no, we don't want to do that." You know, she we wanted to do, uh, you know, stop something professional. You know, <laughs> not not don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Schmigelska. Don't put your daughter on the stage. Um. Anyway, my father relented and said, okay, we'll give her a couple of years and she can, you know, she can try. And then they had an agency and that's how it all started. Really. They had an agency. And I was sent off to do what's called um, crowd work. I think you now call them background artists. But then it was called crowd work. And I was in films like um, all the original St. Trinian's films, all those terrible children with that terrible hair screaming down staircases and it was great fun um what else was i in oh i I was told again by somebody at one of the conventions that i was in a film called floods of fear didn't remember it but i looked it up had a look and yes there i was sitting in some seat somewhere and that 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 was how it all began just doing crowd work just to get the money for my parents to keep me at the school so that was how i began and then one day, um, I was called for an interview, and that's what happened in those days. A whole group of us were taken by a chaperone. And I think it was Shepperton, and it was an audition for a film called The Story of Esther Costello. And n- no talent involved thus far. I was just lined up, and there was a, an actress called Heather Sears at that time. It was a film with Joan Crawford, Rosanna Brazzi, Heather Sears. And they wanted, at the beginning of the movie, there's a little scene and it shows what happened to make Heather Sears blind. <laughs> disaster movies. <laughs> I was always, always involved in disaster movies right from the beginning. Um, uh, and so this child, it, and it's supposed to be an island, it's such an island, this, this child and her friends go rooting around some uh, area where they're not supposed to go and they find a hand grenade that they think is... is is black gold and she pulls out the pin and she blows them, blows them all up to pieces. Um, but this, then right uh, before the credits start coming up at the beginning, you see this child moving forward and that's me. Uh, and the only reason I got that, as I say, is because I look like Heather Sims. And I don't, I, I, I think, I think I had to, to scream or cry or something right, right at the very beginning. Um, and that film, I believe that was my first. That was my first speaking part, and I had to do it in an Irish accent. And I went, "Oh, that was another little story." And my mother said to me, "Can you speak in an Irish accent?" I said, "No." I was probably only about, probably about nine, because I think Dracula came after that. So yeah, I was probably only about nine. So my mother took me to this lady. I don't even know who she was. And she told me this little rhyme, and it went, In a shady nook on a moonlight night, a leprechaun I sight, with a scarlet cap and a coat of green, and a crushed in white sight. Twas tick tack tick his hammer went upon a weenie shoe. Sure, not to think of that first before. Sure, the fairy was laughing to. Why do I still remember it? You know, it was nine, it must have been 1957. And to get, you know, it, it, it always amazes me that there are things like that that you actually 
never forget. When people ask you, you know, so what did you do at the National Theatre? And all the, some of those things, you know, I mean, I remember doing them, but I can't remember those little details. Like that little poem that that wonderful woman taught me that set me off there. Uh, and then after that, um, and I was trying to think about whether I actually went for an interview for Dracula. Because Dracula came after that, and I can't remember. I don't remember whether I was interviewed or whether the agency were asked, do you have anybody of that, you know, this age, we're looking for a young... I mean, I suppose I must have gone for an interview, but I don't remember. And then Dracula was next. Yeah, now, Dracula, you got to work with um, Terrence Fisher as the director. And what was he like? Do you yep. have any memories of him as a director? I'm asked that quite a lot, actually. Um, and I and many years ago, I was asked by his daughter, you know, can you tell me a bit about father and you're working with us? And I said, look, it's really difficult for me to know. Uh, as I was saying, as Peter Cushing, you know, I was 10 I was 10 years old. I, re I remember little details about those films. And I remember little, I mean, I look at pictures. There's a lovely picture of me sitting on Terence Fisher's lap with a, a Jack and Jill comic. You know, and I'm smiling. And obviously they would, you know, they were really kind. But who wouldn't be to a 10-year-old child? You know, I just have really, really fond memories about my time with Hammer. Because everybody from that, from right at the beginning, um, and obviously I did more films for Hammer, and it was all almost like this is home. Hammer was a home, and I think a lot of people who work for Hammer say that. But Terence Fisher and I think it was that picture is me and Bill Lenny, who I think was the editor. Um, yeah, sitting on his lap, and then. Um, Peter Cushing as well. People say, "What was he like?" He was so he was so gentle, so nice and kind. Melissa Stribling. There's a nice picture of me sitting with Melissa Stribling. But I, I you know, I, 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 I cannot think about why they would be otherwise with a child involved. Especially when they probably would be comfortable and kind to you, not just because you're a child, but also. In a horror film, they have to, they're probably worried about sheltering you from different things to make sure you don't see it. Because you, you actually were walking with um, Carol Marsh when she was playing a vampire at that time. So, you know, I'm sure, you, of course, you didn't have the fangs on or whatever, but it's, you know, it's, it's, they're probably were worried. We don't want to scar her for life, you know. No, no, absolutely. And I, and I, I remember... One thing, uh, and people often ask me about that, is there's that lovely picture of me sitting with Peter Cushing and his coat round me. And I can remember him sort of um, just sitting down saying, no, no, you, you know, don't, don't do why we're going to blow all this. They were blowing um, dry ice or something. He said, you know, you mustn't be worried about that. And there was, <clears throat> and now I know, unbeknownst to me, he said, no, you just stay here because I'm going to go over. And it was, he was going over into the crypt where that coffin was, you know. Still don't like that. Bit. Still don't like any of that, really. Um, and uh, and where where he goes to um, put the stake through um, through her heart. But he just said to me, you know, no, you just stay here, you know, and I'll be, I'll come back. And I and I still remember that coat. It was a black coat, and it had brown fur around it. 
forget, and I reiterate what I said before, you know, all these little things that you remember, and I don't know why, but that must have been to do with being comforted. You know, as you said, you know, they, they obviously did not want me to be scared, didn't want me to be worried. No, one thing I've yeah. always, as a child actor, how many hours were you allowed to work in a day? you know, for Hammer or, or productions like that? Because I'm, I'm, as I know in America, it's a limited amount of time nowadays. I'm not sure back in 1958 if there was a, like a, like certain things um, that you were allowed to do or not allowed to do. Were you allowed to work only daytime and not nights or that kind of stuff? Uh, I don't know about working nighttime. Um, I never had to do that. Um, early in the mornings we did. We started very early. But... Uh, we were supposed to do, <laughs> jokingly, four hours of academic work a day. Well, that didn't really happen. We were told, you weren't, you've got to go up now to the tutor. You know, I never learned anything, really. There was one wonderful tutor. He was a gentle, I don't even know his name. But he said to me, uh, and it was me and Francis Green when we were working in the weeks. And he said, well, you know, I really don't know what you're doing at school. So he said, I'm going, to, I'm going to teach you about, uh, I'm going to teach you some drug I'm going to show you the weather map. And I'm going to tell you about the weather. And that was, you know, that was more useful than anything else I ever learned. And I just, I do, and ed- education did suffer, definitely. Um, so much so that when my children sort of said, oh, you know, uh, oh, we know we'd like to go. I said, you will have your education first because you can do anything you like after that. But you must have your education first, because it does. Of course, it suffers. You know, I used to go back to school and we had to sit exams. I haven't got a clue. I didn't know what they were talking about. Hated math. Hated math. The only thing I really liked was English and and, and history. That was. But it, you know, there were great big gaps because I was constantly in and out of school, constantly. And the only the only thing we were allowed to do was to come in if we were working. We were allowed to come in at 10 o'clock in the morning rather than 9 o'clock to school, but we had to go back into school. But no, I mean, the, the four hours that we were supposed to do with the tutor was pretty useless, really. But that's what, those were the rules. That was what you were supposed to do. What it is like now, I don't know. And the only other thing, I think, when we were in theatre, we, we could only do a six-month session, and then we had to stop. Um, I think that's... That's a bit the same now. I'm not. I'm not really sure anymore. I know some of the children that I teach. They they go in and do things, but they have like a rotor now, and they don't. They have different groups. We didn't have that. I mean, when I was uh, when I was doing the miracle worker, <clears throat> I was uh, I was allowed to do six months, and that was it. Finished. Go away, and that was it. Hmm. Now. After you did um, Dracula, you stayed with Terence Fisher, had you come back and do the two faces of Dr. Jekyll. And um, you had a small role, but I think it was a pivotal role showing the humanity of Dr. Jekyll because you got to play the um, the mute girl that had a, a, a basically a crush on him or really liked him a lot. Yes. That was a very brief role, wasn't it? Where she goes, I, I can remember just going, again, I think he said to me, uh, I'm sorry I've got to be nasty to you, because I think, I don't know, you might have to remind me, but I think he pushes her out of the room, doesn't he? Yeah. And he says, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to push you. Yeah. 
that that was all I remember about that really. Yeah, because because at the beginning you're there, at the, you're at the beginning of the movie, and you can see how he has like um the children over to his garden, and uh, you're fond of. And at the end of the movie, one you can see Hyde's personality is taking more and more dominance over him. Is that's when he pushes you away, but that's that's at, at the very end. So it's basically showing how much he has changed over the right. Course. Okay. I don't even remember what. Why does she go into the into the room when he's changing? Does she go to take him some flowers or something? I don't know. I um, want to watch it again. Yeah, you want to take him flowers. I think I'm not sure if you went into the room or if you were like knocking on the window, and and he came out and oh no, he came out to the garden and you were trying to give him flowers and he was looking at Christopher Lee and um, the one who was playing his wife and they were have they were talking in this other room and he was focused on that and you were trying to give him the flowers and he pushes you out of the way. Right. Okay. I just remember him pushing me. That was and him saying, sorry. Poor girl. I was always in trouble, wasn't I? <laughs> but, but, always in trouble. But but usually you came out alive in in most of these things. So you were in, you were you were the, the 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 girl in peril, but usually you made it. <laughs> that's true too. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Well that would that would sort of well, I, I, I won't uh preempt what you're going to say, but uh, it never takes weeks and stranger. I was the one that got away. Uh, the other girl, unfortunately, doesn't. And and that's actually where we're headed. Never takes sweets from a stranger. And I just watched it for the first time recently, and to me, it's it's the one of the best Hammer movies that I've ever seen. And and that that really people don't realize because they're all so focused on the horror or the the glamour horror type things. But this this is a, a, a really good drama that is just as important today as it was back then. Well, uh, sadly, more so, isn't it now? Really, um, you know, in this era of change, when people are, uh, who abuse power and wealth um, they're being called out and put behind bars. But in those, in going back to that. Um, I believe, and I've, I've only read this, that Anthony Hines was determined that he wanted to come away from gothic horror and do something more dramatic. And I, I, I was never allowed to watch these films, obviously, when I was uh, younger, because there was no such thing as DVDs and no such thing as videos. They were all ex-certificates. Um, and so I didn't see them until much, much later on in my life. But that film... I, I was I was distressed to know that nobody had seen it. Nobody was seeing it. And the reason they didn't see it was because Anthony Hines really believed in it. He really believed that this, this it came from a, a, a play that I was going to do. Well, maybe she shouldn't go into all of that. But anyway, I was going to do it. It was a Sunday night picture, a Sunday night theatre production. And then a lady called Lady Lewison kicked up such a fuss because she said, this child isn't 12 and she shouldn't be appearing in a sex play. Well, it wasn't a sex play. It was... Anyway, so I was I was told, you know, you'll have to come out of that. It was far too much adverse publicity. Um, and then Anthony Hines picked that play up, played by, I think his name was Roger Garris, Canadian. Um, and Anthony Hines said, you know, this is a story that really should be told. And it was, uh, Roger Garris wrote it because he had 
he had his I think it was his daughter had had an experience, a young girl had had an experience. He felt you know this should be brought to to public attention. And um, anyway, Anthony Hines picked this this script up and thought he believed in it when no one else was interested in it. He said, you know, this would be the way forward. Um, and it's you know it's a really really good movie. And because when he took it to for it to be um, the British Board of Censors, they said, and he thought it should be put out for uh, children as a warning. Children should go and see it. Uh, and the, the British Board of Censors said, no, it's far too far too scary. You know, you, it, and you would, you know, the children might come out thinking that every elderly man was a paedophile, and so no, it has to have an certificate. And they bought it. Hammer fought it, um, and there were various things. People said, "Oh, you know, what about the scenes that were were taken out?" Well, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know about scenes that were rewritten because I don't know if uh, if your listeners would know about this. But Cyril Frankel, to get the best performances from children, decided that, and this was you know this was his way of working that you, you shouldn't have a script. You shouldn't be given a script, uh, and it wasn't improvisation. I mean, he he knew what he wanted. He knew the dialogue he wanted to come out of us, and so we'll never be allowed now. We were taken into the dressing room upstairs in in, in Bray Studios, and he would tell us, "Okay, now this is this is the scene. This is what happens today. This is what you say," and he wanted he wanted it that way because he said that preserved the 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 natural make-believe that a child has. And, you know, and if, you, if, if you've seen it, and when you watch that film, I'm sure that's why he got the best performances out of us. And we never actually saw Felix Elmer. We were never introduced to him. It wasn't, well, this is Felix Elmer, and, you know, he's going to play the old man, so, you know, he's the man that is, no. We never saw him. And there is a scene in it where we're riding the bicycle, and he just steps out. From the woods, and that's the first time that Francis and I ever saw him, and so that reaction from us is exactly what he wanted. Clever, very clever. Um, and when 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 I went to the audition for it, uh, because there'd been all this trouble, and it was two years later after the pony cart had been pulled out of the pony cart, it was two years later, and people asked me, "Well, you know, did you get it because of that?" No. They wanted to steer away from all of that. Uh, they didn't want any adverse publicity when the film came out, which is why I never got any billing outside because they didn't want to draw. They didn't want the wrong the wrong kind of publicity for the film, you know, which is really commendable um, because he really he really believed in that movie, and I really wish it had had. I really wish it had had been. It was way, way, way ahead of its time. Way ahead of its time. For listeners... And I'm only glad now. Sorry. I was just going to say, I'm really glad that, you know, it has been restored. I think you said to me it's been restored into DVD now because it was shelved. It got... There, there were, there, you know, there were people who loved it, people who hated it when it came out, but it, it really... It, it, didn't get didn't get um, 
much circulation in the cinemas here, and I believe, could be wrong, but I believe it was banned in America. They wouldn't show it. I read that somewhere. That could be right. It could be wrong. I'm not sure. I know I know. it came out in America, or at least maybe it was limited release, but it was never take candy from a stranger. So they changed it from sweets to candy because, you know, Americans, we can't figure out, you know, sweets and candy are roughly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you can now. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, sure we, I'm sure we could have dead too, but it's just amazing how some things are changed in titles, like like Dracula, because we had our earlier Dracula of Bela Lugosi. We have to call your Dracula horror of Dracula, you know, because we can't. Ha- we're too confused to figure out that Christopher Lee and Bela Lugosi don't look the same. <laughs> oh really? Oh wow! <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's that's the way I no, look so, at I it. I mean, those uh, going back to sweet. I mean, if anybody said to me, you know, which film do you think you would like to be remembered for? And most people say, uh, uh, oh, but, you know, oh, we remember you in Dead But I would like it to be Never Take Sweet from a Stranger. Because I think that if, even now, if I were, I mean, if I were, and again, going back to the, the certification of it, Somebody asked me, well, what do you think now? And because I've got my my grandchildren, my granddaughters are five and six, you know, I think I think they were right. I think maybe it is too scary. You know, I think it would it is down to the parents to say to give them that information to explain to them that, you know, you, 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 you mustn't do these things. You know, there are people out there who are not going to be friendly or who, who appear to be friendly and are not friendly and you mustn't go there, you mustn't do that. But to actually see that, I mean, it, it's pretty scary even now. To me, it's, like I said, there is, it's not only the best, but to me, I, when I put out, I post on Facebook to people, it's like, this is to me the most horrific Hammer movie ever made. And not that it, it, it's wonderfully made. It's wonderfully acted, but it's a horrific topic. So, you, so to me, it's, it is the scariest. As a parent, I think any parent, this is the scariest topic to ever bring up. So, if you're a parent watching this film, this is like the, the your worst nightmare type film. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and to be in a position where you feel you can't be honest because you're you you would be in jeopardy yourself. You lose your job. You do this. You do that. You know. It, it, it is. It's a. It's a film with a message, and you have to. You have to watch it, and you have to listen to it. It's a good film, a very good film. Now, one thing you brought up, I'm very curious about, because you said how parents, you know, like we talked about, the younger people not wanting to see it, maybe because it's, it's uh, not having them see it, or should they see it? That's something that everybody has to decide. What were your parents' thoughts when you were in this movie? filming it you know did he have any concerns about you being in this type of film that that, that it would affect you in the filming part or did they talk to you about it ahead of time you know about like how much did they know about the film going in they they, they knew everything about it i mean um it was based on that play the pony cart and prior to me being asked to do the pony cart um I guess my parents were a bit ahead of the time. My mother explained to me, she was she was very good at things like that. 
she, I mean, I didn't go into it blind. I, I knew, I knew that it was about, I suppose I didn't, I didn't fully understand paedophilia. Um, but I did understand that you don't talk to strange men, that they, you know, there can be people out there who are not, not friends. I mean, I had an incident where I was walking to, I, I knew because my mother had informed me. My mother had informed me about things like that. Um, and w when I was, uh, when I was going to school one day, some gentleman decided to expose himself and it was terrifying. I was terrified. Um, so I had had experience of things like that. Um, but my mother said to me, this is what it's about, but this is a film. You know, this is not reality. This is a film. If this is the business you're going into, the same as we, you know, when we were doing triffids, um, were you really scared of the triffids? And my mother said to me, you know, well, you know, it is a film about monsters from outer space, but they're not real. They're not real. I mean, the topic of sweets is real. And hopefully we, will, we won't be invaded by um, things from outer space. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, with sweets, no, she, she, she explained to me. She told me that this is what it's about, the seriousness of the, of the piece. I knew. I understood. Yeah, because that's something I know for a young actor like yourself at that time. That's the delicate balance that parents do because some parents are just, I feel some parents of child actors just want to get them out there and just get, you know, get as much money as they can. You know, it's almost like they're the bad show parents. And then you had other ones that really care about, which I think is hopefully the majority of the parents is, cares about their child and wants to make sure that they come out of this, you know, have a positive experience, but also know, as your parents said, that it's important. This is an important movie message, which having done the play, you know, obviously you were more prepared for this movie than most people would have been as a young actor. Yeah. Uh, and my mother was very much of the opinion, uh, and she kept saying to me, and don't you ever forget that if you start acting like you're some kind of starlet, that's the end of it. You know, you'll be out. She wasn't one of those, she wasn't one of those cushy mums where, you know, Oh my darling, you know you've got to do this, and oh, you'll be, you're marvelous, sweetheart, you're wonderful, darling. You know, I've met a few of those in my time. Goodness me, but my mother was completely the opposite. She said, the minute that happens, you're out. We'll stop you. Kind of reminds me. kept me grounded. Kind of reminds me, of Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, or if we're really walking the Chocolate Factory. She was making sure you're an Overruka salt. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely good, good analogy. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Oh, uh, uh, this is one thing I want to ask you though. If if you have any memories in the in this one movie, don't take never take sweets from a stranger. When you were in the courtroom, because it sounds like the way the director yeah. set you up, he said you gave you an idea what was going on, and he wanted to get the most like realistic approach. What was it like with the defense attorney and especially the prosecutor? Do you have any memories when you were on the stand and the, the prosecutor was just grilling you? Uh, I've been asked that before, uh, and I'll give you the same answer. That that shot um, had to be, well, well he, Cyril Franklin decided that had to be done in one take. Um, and that was his, that was his way of, 
of, of, of filming most of that film, actually. You know, it wasn't, oh, let's do a tuck into her face or, you know, no, it was done as it happened. And it was, and I, I've, I only know this because I've read about it, that they had to leave that scene till very much the end of the picture of shooting because they were still backwards and forwards with um, uh, the uh, it being certified that there were certain things he, they, they didn't want in that scene. They didn't want rape mentioned. They didn't want... Uh, there were certain things they had to... And, uh, wording had to be changed. Well, that didn't matter to me because I didn't have a script anyway. I just did what I was told. But I think the powerfulness of that scene comes from the fact that it happened all in one take. Yeah? And we got to the end of it and... Um, and I've read myself saying this before that you know I got I did get quite hysterical at the end you know when I'm crying and my chaperone was standing I could see her standing at the back and she was saying you've got to stop you've got to stop the girls getting hysterical <laughs> and I thought oh, no, I don't I, I'm doing this really well I don't want to stop <laughs> and and Cyril Frank was saying no 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 we we need to finish we need to finish and there was this sort of flat and. And all the way home, it's that she had this minivan that we were we were uh, transported in. And I kept thinking, I wonder why she why she felt I was hysterical when I thought I was doing really good acting. <laughs> so it was funny. That was, uh, I, when I look back at it now, it was funny, but it was a good scene because of that. It was powerful because he didn't want to retake it, and I think he was right. You know, he got he got the the, the power out of that scene. Because he just kept going, I believe anyway. Oh, oh. You know, even watch, think, oh yeah, that's why. That's why he didn't want to stop. Oh, I, I believe it worked really well, and it was you hated the prosecutor, you know, because he's going after a little girl, and it's just he's grilling her and grilling her, and you just you're just like you are this most despicable person, and you hate the old man's son because he sicked the prosecutor on you, and it was just like, it, oh, you, you talk about some villains. I think, I think I think that was one of the reasons why that, you know, there were people who loved the film and people who hated the film, because I think the people who hated it said, oh, you know, we would never let that happen. You, you should never have let that happen, you know, even in a film to a child, you know. There were those people who were against it. But, you know, it was reality, wasn't it? Yes, it was. As it's so sad because, and for people that haven't seen it, the only thing I'll tell you about it is we mentioned part of the movie is about, the other part is about the um, the difference in class at this small town because the, the person who is doing these perverted acts is like one of the town founders. He's in the, he's in the family with the money, and then people are so worried about speaking out and doing stuff, and it's basically money buying quietness and to keep reputation and allow these heinous acts to go on. So there's these two storylines going on at the same time. And uh, which I think as we said, it's, it's so appropriate still today and, and it will probably sadly be appropriate for tomorrow. It's, it's one of those, I think those stories that I don't think will ever lose its timeliness. Sadly. Now another movie you did, which, which tries to tell people about don't do these certain things because this could lead to bad situations don't talk to strange men. 
Yeah. And that was made as a B movie, actually. You know, B movies in those days were films, you know, they showed two films. One was the main feature and one was the the B feature. And that was made as a B. Again, a, a very good movie. A very, very good movie. Um, did I get that film because I'd done Never Take Sleep from a Stranger? I don't know. I was just, you know, I, I was happy to to play the part of this. It was, um, the story of that is basically two sisters, one who uh, goes off, passes, a, a goes to catch a bus and uh, hears the phone ringing in a phone box, picks the phone up and is seduced by this voice at the end of the phone and keeps going in to meet him, keeps going in, I mean, not meet him, keeps going to the, to the phone, pick up the phone. And eventually he says, will you meet me? Um, and her, I think her parents say, really shouldn't do this. But the little, the little one, me, decides in her infinite wisdom that she's going to go. Uh, and she's bundled off in a car. I don't know how she's rescued. I can't remember. And I remember the director saying, that's something I remember that day. Um, the director saying, now, Yanina, when you're bundled into the car, do be careful. You know, and uh, yes, I said, and the door slammed and my finger was in it. Oh. Yeah. And so if you look at the end of the movie, we won't go into gory details. Um, so I had to go off to the hospital. Um, I've still got the scar to this day on my finger across here. Um, have it all stitched back up. But if you look at the end of the movie, um, Christina comes in, Christina Gregg, who plays the old sister, comes in and says, you know, uh, and how is your, how is your finger? They had to write it in because my finger was all, my finger's all bound up. And that's why. There's nothing to do with the film. It was just the fact that I'd managed to get my finger stuck in the car door. Yeah. You just answered a question I was going to ask you because the movie you started off with, with your finger wrapped in a bandage, and I was going to ask you, did you have an injury prior to filming? But no, no, you had the injury during filming. <laughs> during the filming, yeah, during the filming. And, oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. Filming stopped. Well, it had to stop. But I say, we won't go into gory details, but there was, yes, there was a fingerless artist around. <laughs> and, and you were saved by... Um, the guy that Christina would babysit for, Ron, if you're trying to remember, he's the one who came. She brought him over, and he drove down, and they stopped the guy's car, and he pummeled the guy until the police got there. That's how you were saved. All right. Okay, that's how I was saved. Yes. Good. Oh, always saved. I'm fine. I'm always saved. I'm out a bit unscathed, <laughs> apart from a bad finger. <laughs> In um, reality. What was, what was, do you have any memories like of, of working with Christina Craig? Because you two seem to have such good chemistry. No, not really. She, she apparently was a, a model prior to that. She hadn't done, she hadn't done much in films. I think she maybe did two films. <laughs> Mind you, I had a look at the, I was quite indignant about it actually, in the actual, um, DVD, there's a inside, you know how you get those little bits of information inside. And wh whoever released that, um, there was, he wrote in it, uh, this was this, uh, the, the young girl, Yanina Fay, um, she had done, uh, uh, she did, uh, she did a couple of movies and, you know, uh, and, but she's vanished. <laughs> what do you mean I vanished? I didn't vanish after that. I went off, I went off to do television. 
theatre. I tried to get hold of him, actually. I tried to, to, to send, send a message via an email to the person who released it to say, you know, have you done your homework? Because I didn't vanish. I'm, you know, I was still, still a working, I'm still a, I have to say actress. I, I, I don't like to be called an actor, as most modern people like to be called. I like to be called an actress. I'm female. Thank you. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's funny because that somebody put that because it's actually her career. She only did a very few movies, and then she just, she's the one that's like, you can't really find any information. I think maybe he got the two of you mixed up. I think, well, hopefully he did because I didn't, I didn't vanish. I carried on, yeah. Well, if you vanished, I'm talking to a ghost, so it's like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Now, the day of the triffage, you were, I guess, to my mind, fortunate enough to be with one of my favorite actors, Howard Keel. And you were with him virtually the whole movie because, you know, once once he establishes his part, it's like once he, um, you two meet, from that point on, you two are, you're not father and daughter, but you are, in a sense, that relationship. What was it like working with Howard Keel? Because he, to me, I just love Seven Brides or Seven Brothers and all these different things that he's done. When I did, when I when I knew that I was I was cast in that, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> I just absolutely did. I mean, it was real hero worship. And my 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 mother and all the ladies around, you know, the older generations with my mom and oh, you're not working with Howard Keel. Oh, you're so lovely. But he was so lovely. Um, and I really did. I, I mean, I, I so enjoyed doing that movie. We had such fun. He was just so kind, so nice. Um, yeah, but everybody else was so envious. <laughs> oh, no, you're not working with our kids. And even now, you know, if I watch those, I can't even believe there, there are certain things that I've done and I look up and I think, gosh, I'm so lucky the people I've worked with, you know? It seems like when I watch them, it's like watching somebody else now. And Deb the Trippers is shown an awful lot here, an awful lot. You know, they have, they have uh, there was one program that's called Famous Disaster Movies. And I thought, disaster movies? Somebody said to me, oh, yes, can you, can you talk about the... Uh, and I thought, well, it can't be that, you know, it can't be that far up. But the ratings for Day of the Trippers was way, way up. But I loved that film. I really, really loved that film. Thoroughly enjoyed doing it. Well, I, I always I always enjoy watching it. And it's just one of those films that just, I don't know. It, it is a disaster film, but it's, it's like... The mo- one of the more different disaster films than most people think, because most people I think think like the Poseidon Adventure or Tower and in Inferno or Earthquake. <laughs> this is a, a sci-fi yeah. disaster. <laughs> the sad thing about that was, if only they had stuck, and they do this a lot with books, I find. If only they had stopped up to John Wyndham's book, it would have been a better film. Um, and I remember when I finished that film, wondering. I wonder why it's not been released. I wonder why. Why? Why is it taking so long for it to come out? Yeah, because I thought it was a good movie. Now there are many stories going around, and I don't know the truth of it. Uh, 
one one story was that it 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 wasn't a, the the ending of it wasn't acceptable as it stood that there was no solution to the disaster that the trip is going to take over the world that was not acceptable and then Freddie Francis is that am I correct in saying Freddie Francis he was called in and all the scenes with Kieran Moore and Janet Scott were filmed 18 months later. And that was added to the film. Excuse my clock. Um, that was added to the film. And when I met him at one of these conventions and we were interviewing, I said, uh, well, I, 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 I was told that uh, the, the film wasn't acceptable because, you know, Oh, no, 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 he said it. it wasn't it. He said it wasn't long enough. And so we were called in to, to put, to, to make an, ex, a, a, an acceptable ending, uh, but B, because it wasn't long enough. I said, oh, okay, well, you know, I don't know. I was only a child at the time. That was what I was told. Um, and then another little story that went along with that, and I, it might even have been at, at at your convention, somebody came up to me and said, you know, there is a, there's a slight problem with the ending of this film. I said, well, well, what's that then? And they said, well, if the, if, if, if the solution was salt water and they were in a lighthouse and all the triffids had surrounded them and were attacking them, how come the salt water didn't kill them outside first? <laughs> I said, oh, you know, I never really thought about that. And if you think about it, that whole scene of them fighting the drifts off is because they're coming, they're coming on the on the rocks and the and the sea is coming at them. So why didn't it kill them before that? I'd never thought about that. I'm sure we can come up with some crazy solution as to how it all worked or whatever, but there would never have been that many of them if it did happen. Like, what if a couple of them fell in a spot where no salt water could get to and they grew there, but. Would there, would there have been that many triffids at the lighthouse? I doubt it. But if you're believing the plants are walking, I think you could just, just go with it. <laughs> go with it. True. Go with it. Do you, and the other thing about that, was people said to me about triffids, did you enjoy going to Spain? I said, no, I never went to Spain. That was never me. I got as far as Shepparton Lock. All the stuff in Spain was done with doubles. They went to Spain and they did it with doubles. We didn't go, sadly. Well, that would have been an adventure to have at a young age. Of, oh, Mom, we're going to Spain. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But I did think, uh, you know, going back to Howard Peel, I did think, oh wow, aren't I lucky? This is, you know, this is my, this is my, my, my chance to meet meet a big movie star. And he was lovely, really, really lovely. Bless him. Now, somebody else you worked with, I, I love watching Doctor Who. And you got to work with Carol Ann Ford in that movie also. Do you have any memories with, working with her? Yeah, and you know, I didn't realize until much later that she was in Doctor Who. I mean, it was so awesome. Oh, was that the same Carol Ann Ford that I worked with in Triffids? Yeah, she wasn't in it very much. She wasn't in it an awful lot. Uh, I think there were only a couple of scenes with her. She was she was a pregnant lady, wasn't she? 
who we met in Spain and went off with. She was she was the um, the blind woman when you guys were at the the one house where they're trying to the, um, um, yeah, and she, she's with, with Nicole Marie Boris. where they're trying to have everybody saved and she could she was it was when you were supposedly in France and she could speak English so when they brought you up to the dormitory. Um, the one character, Christine, that um, introduced the two of you together to say, oh, you can comfort. So she was there for a few scenes, and then she meets her demise when she um, doesn't realize she's walking into the trip. It's after the, um, the convicts took over the place. So she was one oh. of the blind, she was one of the blind um, people in the thing. Was she not the, not the Spanish, not the girl who's Spanish? Oh, right, okay. Okay. I need to watch it again, don't I? You know more about see you you fans, you know more about these films than I do. <laughs> we know about I thought that's why I never really asked too many details for anybody that's acted in the film about like do you remember this scene or that scene? Because I, the way I look at it for you, that's like a, a if I was to ask somebody, now what did you do at your work twenty years ago on a Tuesday? Exactly. And nobody's gonna remember I'm glad you <laughs> I'm glad you appreciate that. Yeah, especially you know when you're, as I said to you right at the very beginning, you know when somebody when somebody started their career in 1958, you know we're going back 50 years or more, sadly. Yeah. Well, a good career though, a good one with some very very good, good, wonderful actors. Yeah, I have I, no regrets. About it. And that's why I always ask the questions like, "What are your memories of this or that?" Because I'm just like, you know. It's, Every so often, if I'm talking to a director, then I will ask more detailed questions because the director is more of the, you know, the general of the whole thing and, and usually will recall a lot more details. Yes. Well, they have to work out the technicalities of all of that, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, before we talk about a couple other your film work, this I want to talk go back a little bit and talk about your theater work because people don't realize you were in a lot of television and theaters um, uh, and you did the miracle worker where you played Helen Keller, which I never got to see, but I, I was just curious, like, what was it like playing that role? That was, again, the most wonderful opportunity that I was given as a child to play that part. Um, that came about because, again, we were all sent, we were sent many, many children, all of us were just sent, and we went to the theater for an audition and we were all asked to line up and create a fight sequence. The director, I think the director was called Peter Coe, he went along and he pointed to the girl next to me and she didn't move. And I thought, well, I can do this. So I I went out with another girl down who was in the line and we started this fight. And he said, right, thank you, you two, you stay. And that was because in that play, there is this scene between um, the, the teacher, and who was played by Anna Matthews, and Helen Keller, when the teacher is trying to tame her because she's become so wild. And um, that, that play was really uh, one of the, the best things I ever did in the theater. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. As a child. Because then later on in my theatre life, I went to to the National Theatre. And I got the National Theatre audition because of the Miracle Master. 
one night at Wyndham Theatre, there was a knock on my door, uh, and the chaperone obviously was in there, I was in there with one of the other girls, and uh, this gentleman stood at the door, and my chaperone opened the door, and he said, um, uh, my name is uh, Lawrence Olivier, and this is my wife, Vivian Lee. And we'd just like to say, and he gave me this huge bunch of buttons. How marvellous is that? And they were, and I again, I remember those, they were freezing, and the smell of those blood. Anyway, um, and then years later, so when I went to the National, I was 15, just coming out of school, 15. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And people said to me, well, when you leave school, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to RADA? Or are you going to go to Central? What are you going to do? There wasn't much choice in those days. There are hundreds of drama schools now. But it was in those days, it was either RADA or Central that you went to. And I said, you know, I really don't know what I'm going to do. Then I had this call to audition at the, the National. And it was Salon Olivier. And he said again, he said to me, uh, I don't suppose you remember me. <laughs> I, re I remembered him. Um, and it was for a play called uh, The Crucible by Arthur Miller about the Salem witches. And that was how I got in. So I was 15. I was the youngest member then of the National Theatre Company and stayed there for four years. Uh, so I didn't really need to go to drama school because that was my schooling, being directed by him in the crucible and i did love for love uh much do about nothing um a play called a bond honored and one other play the dance of dead the dance of death dance of death dance of death i played his daughter in dance of death that was it yeah dance of death thank you for that job in my memory why would i forget that um so yes, I played his daughter in Dance with Death. And that was actually one of the last plays that he did at the National because then he got he got poorly and, and I left and he left. Um, because you had a, a like a, a, a renewable contract. If there was a play that you could be cast in, um, you stayed. So, you know, there's a notice that went up on the board after every play. And they used to do used to do things in repertoire, so you wouldn't always be doing the same play every day of the week. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I played his daughter in Dark to Death. And then when, when that play finished, that was the end of my my time there. Um, but I went off because I got married and had my first child. And then I had this call to say um, they wanted to make a film of Dark to Death. I think they started to, 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 to want to make films of him as a record because otherwise there would have been no record of any of those kind of productions that he did I mean he went on afterwards to do a lot of films but I think at that time he was pretty poorly so I think they wanted to make sure that they had the word in the can they had some things in the can that they you know that they they, they had of him um yeah no. That was Dance Death. We did that at, I think, Twickenham Film Studios or Kennington Film Studios. I can't remember which one now. When you worked with, when you were working with Lawrence Olivier, what, what did it, um, how did he mentor you? Because I know, I know um, a friend of mine, Kirk Christian, he was also in the National Theater with Lawrence Olivier. And he, I remember him telling me about one of the big things was always staying in shape. 
you know, and always working out and keep yourself physically ready. I didn't know if he gave you any tips or, or, or did you just pick up on certain things because watching him work? Oh, um, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, watching is as important as doing in the theatre. Um, but because I was the youngest member, um, he was very much a father figure to me. And I remember we, we used to go, we used to do a lot of touring. We went to, we actually went to Russia and we went to Canada. But he was, uh, he was, he was always, he had um, a secretary and he would always say to her, now, is Yanina all right? Where, where is she? And I had to have, I had to have my own dressing because I mustn't be, you know, mustn't be corrupted by any bad language. And he was very, you know, and I remember when I got married, uh, he called me in afterwards and he said, he used to call me, well, you called everybody baby. Baby, why didn't you tell me? Oh, I said, well, I don't think you'd be very interested to learn. <laughs> he said, oh, but you should have told me. And that was that was in that gap between when I left and when the film was made. So I think it was only a two-year gap between when I when I left the theatre and when they decided to do the film. And that was when he said to me, why didn't you tell me? Um, yeah. That's what shows you he really cared about you and he was just like, I want to know. And, and it's... Sometimes when you're younger, you don't realize how much somebody older or different thing cares about you. You think, oh, it's a work relationship. You didn't realize it was something where he actually mm-hmm. really was worried and concerned about you. Absolutely, and you know there were there are people there who said, you know, oh, he was he was difficult to work with, and and I've heard that about a lot of people. But they, it wasn't that they were difficult. It was that they knew what what was required and you know and if you didn't if you didn't do it then you'd be in trouble you know he could be he could be ruthless um but not in the not not for any bad reason but because he you know he knew what he was doing he he was there there were other actors who are you know i'd worked with and i've heard oh you know he's got a bit of a bad reputation or she's got a bit but you know they can be normally it was because they wanted perfection. They wanted professionalism. And if you didn't do that, then that was when they were difficult. I certainly didn't come across that, really. Certainly not with him. I think a lot of people, when they, as you said, it's just because some people want you to do your best. And as long as you're always doing your best, they're happy, you know, because they know you're doing the best that you can. And it's when you're when you're when you're mailing it in, as some people will say, or just or you're just not doing as well as, as the best you could do. That's when they're starting to realize, because you're not doing your best, it affects my performance, it affects her performance, it affects yeah. everybody's performance. Absolutely, absolutely. Now you also you were in the the play version of Little Women and the TV series version of Little Women, playing I believe two different. Characters like one in the play, one in the um, the, the miniseries. Yeah, I for, for the BBC um, production of that, um, I played Amy, and um, when I did the theatre play of it, I played Joe. Uh, but I played uh, it was quite a lo- it was, I was quite a lot older when I played Joe. Uh, when I I think I was maybe twenty one when I played Amy. But, you know, the problem I always had, which I suppose then was a good problem to have, 
was that I was not very, very young. So I could play Amy, although I was 21. But because the the series was, she had to grow up. Amy had to grow up through the six weeks of the of the of the program. Um, I was able to to play both. In those days, um, that worked to my advantage. Later on in life, as a career, no, it didn't really, because people kept saying, "Oh yes, well, you mean you know, I know you can do it, but you still look so very young." Well, just give me a chance. But no, it didn't really happen. And you know, and when I look back now, and I, you know, I have no regrets. I, I, I had a very, very good career. People say, "Well, why did you?" Why did you stop acting? And I said, well, actually, I didn't. Uh, if anything, it stopped me, really. It, 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 the profession stopped because every time I went for something, he said, oh, yeah, you know, my agent said, well, you see, the problem is, Nina, they all know how old you are, um, but you still look so young. Fine. Well, that's great, but it's not, it's not doing my professional career any good, is it? No, I didn't want to. I didn't want to give up acting. Why did you give up acting? No, I didn't give up acting. Acting gave up me, actually. It, it, it's it's like um some people say um you don't retire from acting. Acting retires you, which is the same thing you're as you're saying. It's uh because it depends what roles. Yeah. And, and sometimes people come back later on and. And then some people say, oh, they were rediscovered. It's like, no, they're not rediscovered. They were always there. It's just nobody was giving them parts. And and that's the part that drives me nuts. I think, yeah. I think if, if my, if, if I, if all of that had happened, let's even say 20 years later, and I'd had that progression now, I think there would have been more opportunity for me to carry on. I think because it happened then, um, it sort of the whole the whole business changed really. You know, when I was in, oh, it sounds like some poor old lady, but when, when I started, you know, you could you you had to you had to work your way up. You had to do repertory theatre. You had to do theatre. Yeah, I did live television. Um, it do, it doesn't exist anymore. You know, so I would never regret it. I don't regret that because. I had such a varied experience. Now it's all about, uh, it's all instant. It's got to be done now. Uh, and I think the, the very last thing I did, my, my brother, he's retired now, but he was, a, he was a cameraman, he was a film cameraman. And I went off and I think it was, it was the final thing I did, I think it was an episode of The Bill. I don't know if you know about it there, but it, it's a television series called The Bill. I went off. And they, they were they were turning these productions out, and I expect they do it in America as well, where you know it's it shown every day. There's 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 one episode every day, uh, and and they said right, well, you're you're in in the red team. Don't 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 go on the red bus. Don't go on the blue bus because you're on the red bus, and you know and and the artist uh, and they'll come to you, and. <laughs> What, what, hang on, what, 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 what's going on here? So we're not going to all sit down and read it through and we're not going to meet each other and we're not going to talk about it. We're just going to meet on the bus. We're going to run our lines through and we're going to do it. Yes. And I thought, and I remember there was one scene uh, 
was in an interview room where I had to give my evidence. And it was literally in a little room with a cameraman standing outside and the guy who was interviewing me sitting in front. And I had to give this long address about what had happened to my son. And then there was a pause. And the guy said, and, you know, and, I, and it was quite an emotional statement that I had to give. Gave all this statement and I stopped. And then there was a say, bit of silence. And then the cameraman said, and the director said, uh, okay, can we just do that again? Why? Why? No, no, no. There was no reason given. So I had to rewind in my brain and I had to do this whole thing. And I thought, you know, I'd never met this guy before. I didn't know who he was. I'd met him as an actor or anything. It was just, we'll sit down and we'll do this thing and then we'll do it again. Mm. And I and I, I remember coming home and saying to my brother, is this the way things are now? And he said, yeah, time is money. Time is money. I said, well, I don't know. I, do, I, I don't know anymore whether this is... I mean, I'm sure there are other productions. That was just unfortunate. That that was my last experience of working like that. And I thought, no, I, I don't think... I don't think that's for me anymore. You know, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't my idea of acting. Um, if something, somebody said to me, well, if something had come up after that, would you? I said, yeah. You know, if, if, it, if, it, if the experience was different, uh, I, I probably would because there are still lots of things that I would, I would love to have done, but certainly not under those conditions, no. There was one short I wanted to bring up, Green Fingers, that you did in, uh, I think it came out in 2000. So it was, it was, you know, well, not that long ago. It's like you know, 22 years ago compared to what we're talking about, things from 1958. And you got, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to work with Ingrid Pitt. You know, well, well I met I'd met I'd met Ingrid at a lot of the conventions, and uh, the gentleman who who wrote that and wanted it, he was uh, he was he was one of he was a fan. He was a you know a horror fan, and he wanted to make his own movie. And he said to Ingrid. Would would you be in it? And then he said to me, "Listen, Yanina, um, would you be in it if I actually got it off the ground and and did it?" And I said, "Yeah, of course I would. You know, I don't mind. Uh, obviously, I, you know, I'll read it first and and, and see it. But uh, I, I admired Paul and what he tried to do with that. You know, put a lot of his own money in it. Ingrid wanted to do it badly." And so I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. I don't think it was that successful, to be totally honest, um, for various reasons. Um, but it was, ni- it was nice to do it for, for Paul uh, and to help him realise his ambition of making a film. That was basically why I did it. And Ingrid and I were great friends. You know, we, 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 I say we'd met at one of the conventions and... Sadly, she's no longer with us. So it was hard work because it was done on a very small budget. Uh, we were all very cold, very wet. Um, but that's all I can say about that, really. Um, it wasn't it wasn't that successful um, for various reasons, but I say it fulfilled his ambition of making a, a horror movie. I think one of the main reasons it wasn't successful, it broke the tradition 
of a lot of movies that you're in and that you survive this, this one. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> if he would have I had you. I did, did, did I survive? Oh, I it... think she, no. Oh, so you say I didn't survive. Sorry, I misunderstood you. I thought you said I, I did survive. No, I didn't survive. No. If you would have survived, no, it would have it probably would have been a hit. But it, it, it well, I mean, <laughs> in theory, you could have made it. It leaves with her coming. For, I'll, I'll spoil the ending for those that haven't seen it. And it's available on YouTube. So it's Green Fingers, um, you know, make make it. It's it's out there, so you can watch it. But at the very end, if you don't want to be spoiled, skip a, skip one minute ahead at this point. At, you know, at the very end, she's coming down with the at the hatchet, and it cuts. So she could have tripped. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? It was it was it was written and rewritten and written and rewritten and sometimes it, to its own detriment, I think, really. It's not it's not the best. But I say it fulfilled Paul's ambition and I wanted to do it for him. So uh, it's out as you say, it's out there. People make, must make their own minds up about it, but I don't think it's that good of an idea. I just look at it as it, it reminds me of like an EC Comics. For the, if, I'm not sure if you're familiar with EC Comics, but they used to come out with these horror stories back in the day with a little twist ending. They're a little gory thing, and it'd go on for so many pages because it's a, about 20 minute long short. So it reminds me of one of those short stories that you would read in an EC Comics, you know, and. Uh, I take it as that. It, it, it's enjoyable to watch, you know. I, I, like I said, your best work to me is never take sweets from, a, you know, a, a stranger. It's, uh, that, to me, that is the best one. I mean, uh, to me, it's the best Hammer movie that I've seen to this date. I'm glad you think so, because I think so, too. Out of, all the, out of all the Hammer pictures that I did, obviously, that one is. But there's, there's, there are lots of things. I mean, I have to look up now. And I can't believe myself. My I have a webmaster who is he's in he's in America, and he made up a list, a list for me. And he said, "Nina, have you ever have you ever made a list of all the things you've done?" I said, "No, no." He said, "Would you like to write it down, and I'll I'll, I'll type it up for you." <laughs> Your listeners can't hear this, but I will show you. Look, look. Right, that's one page. That's television and theatre. Right, and, and, and he for- made up this list. And I have to look down it and I think, what are you that? And what are you that? Oh my goodness. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, there was a, there was another film I did called The Beauty Jungle with Janet Scott in it. Janet Scott playing a beauty queen. Again, I think it was a, a film because Janet Scott wanted to break away from, you know, she wanted to be a bit more sort of uh, like a, uh, a, a modern girl. And I played her. I played her sister in it. Um, it's it's not it's not a film I'm, I'm particularly proud of, but that was that was another one. Um, Dance of Death we talked about. Uh, another uh, that was made as I say that was made because they wanted to have a record of things that um, Solange Olivier had done. <laughs> and there I think it is a TV movie. It's written on here. Destiny of the Spy. Don't remember doing that. Life and Death of John Keats. Don't remember that. <laughs> I have to go down the list to try and remember all these things I did. And for listeners that want to read this, it's it's 
janiathay.com. I'll have the link in the show notes and you can click on it and the lists are all there. So if anybody can oh, see they? it. Oh, well, they have a look. Yeah, they'll, they'll know more than I do then. <laughs> they can look and see. One other thing I want to ask you. Yes, carry on. What movie or, or, or thing have you always wanted to be asked about that nobody's ever asked about? You and I were discussing this prior to the interview. There was a certain, because I was asking, like, well, what would you want to talk about that you're not normally asked about? And you brought up Bobbikins. Bobbikins, yes. We'll talk about Bobbikins. I was well, at one of the conventions. Might have been yours. Might have been Chilla. I don't know. But I was sitting there having a having an interview and that. Uh, you know, you have a Q&A at the end and we're all sitting on the stage. And this gentleman put his hand up and he said, uh, Miss Faye. Yes. And I said, can I please ask you? And I said, you can ask me anything you like. I'll try and answer it. He said, is it true? Is there any truth in the fact that in the film Bobbykins, you were the voice of Bobbykins, the baby? And I just, I was completely flummoxed. And I said, do you mean to tell me? I said, nobody has ever asked me that in my life. I said, I've come halfway across the world. I've come to a convention. And you are asking me, was I the voice of Bobby King? And he just said, yes. And I said, yes, I was. <laughs> and I had never seen the film. I, and it was, it was only him saying that that I remembered that I had actually done this whole film uh, and, and done the voice of Bobby King. And then I had to go home. And I had to look it up. He's never seen it. I thought, I really must see this film. I must have a look at it. And it's all about this baby that talks. Max Bygrave was the um, the man in it. Uh, and then this, this baby, and nobody believes him. They think he's mad because the baby talks. I think there's a, there's a modern version of that kind of that film. It's not called Bobby Kings. It's called something else. But anyway, it's about the baby that talks. Um, American film, I believe. Oh, look who's talking. You're thinking about look who's talking? Look who's talking. So it's based on the same kind of thing, isn't it? And I remember uh, I remember saying to whoever it was that was doing the sound, um, how did you get the baby to keep opening? And they said they gave him sweets. <laughs> so he would open and close his mouth. And then I had to, I had to fit the dialogue to this baby's voice. And you know, and, and I don't, I don't know how they do soundtracks, but in those days, you looked at the screen. They had a big picture in front of you, and there was a, a brown line that came across the screen. And when the brown line came from right to left, when it hit the left side of the screen, you spoke. And that was how they did post thinking in those days. That was how it was done. I don't know how they do it now. Technically, much further advanced, I would say. But yeah, but I thought that was hysterical that I'd come all the way to America to a to a horror convention and somebody says to me, Are you the voice of Bobby Kids? <laughs> yes. Well you know you never the joy of these I was just gonna say the joy of these fans, they always make me smile. They're so good. So good. And I I I'm gonna say you've brought a lot of joy to me when I met you in twenty eighteen. And um, you were, you know, um, you were so nice and kind. I, was, I, was, I talked to you at your table, and then later on, 
you came over to do an interview for a friend of mine, um, Derek M. Cook, for his Monster Kid radio show, and I was there helping him out, that kind of stuff. And it was just, you know, you're so pleasant and nice to be around. And I'm hoping that um, as we get through all these current events that you'll have a time to be able to come back to America. Those that are doing conventions, all you got to do is ask. <laughs> all you have to do is ask me. And if I can come, I will come. It's a delight to meet you all. I mean, it really is. It works both ways. It really does. You know, you have to be. It, it brings joy to me. I, I you know, I, I, when right at the very beginning, when I said, I think I said to you, all the films and um, pictures that I did, if they were executed, I mean, not not the the television thing from the theatre. You know, there's no not much record of those. Um, I'm trying to get a record now for my children to see. But I remember, I hadn't seen any of the Hammer pictures. And my middle son was going to work one day and he was going up the escalators and he said, I heard this screaming. And he said, and then I heard this voice and I thought, I know that voice. It's my mother's voice. And they were playing the scene of Chippin. And it was was an advertising, um, it was advertising films uh, that were going on at the Barbican at that time. And then he said to me, Mum, he said, have you have you ever seen these films? I said, no. And he said, oh, oh okay. And then one day he said to me, Mum, I've, I've got some uh, I've got some tickets. He said, um, we're, go- we're going to the movies. And I said, okay. I said, well, what are we going to say? Oh, no, I'm not going to tell you what we're going to see. I said, we're, we're, we're just going. And I went into the theatre and they were showing Dracula and they were showing a very bad copy then of Never Take Sweet. And I said, oh, Crispin, you're not bringing me to see Dracula, are you? And he said, he said, I think it's time you saw it on the big screen. Because people laugh at me, but I say, actually, I don't, I don't like horror movies. I don't. I haven't. I never do. Anyway, so I, I looked around and I said, I well, I think people here to see the Hammer movies. And he said, yeah. He said, I told you. And I said, yes. And he said, they are. And I, I went here, and the theatre was And I'm totally honest with you, I had, until that day, so it must have been something like 1997, and I'll tell you why I remember that. Anyway, went in, saw the movies, saw both pictures came out, and everybody said, oh, were you, were you, were you that, were you, were you the girl? Were you Tanya? Were you, were you Jean? Yeah, and, and I had no idea of, what the following for these movies were. And then my son said to me, Mum, you have, you really, you really, he said, if you're asked to go now and talk about Hammer, I said, I thought it was long gone, you know, it was years and years ago. No, he said, there are people who want to know about these movies. And he said, if you're ever asked, please promise me you'll go. And I sort of said, joking, yeah, okay, Kristen. I said, if I'm asked, I'll go. And literally, I think it was about six months later, I had this call from a guy called Harry Nadler, who's boss, sadly. And he said, uh, Miss Faye, he said, I, I hope you don't mind me getting in touch with you. He said, but I, I run this uh, this film festival in Manchester. And he said, we'd really like you to come along and, and talk. And that was what started it, really, of me 
going to visit and realizing what what these what these fans knew you know and they would come to me with all these pictures and 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 joy of of actually meeting meeting me and talking about being in those movies and and I, I think I said to my son well I said one day I, I said I suppose I'll be the only one left because I was the youngest and sadly that's sort of true now there are there are, I don't know that there are many who are in Dracula that are still going. Melissa Stibling's gone. Peter Cushing's gone. Well, we, we can't go through that list, but yes. So I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm part of living history of Hammer. And I'm really quite proud of it. But it's the fans who brought that to me. They brought me the joy of knowing something that I thought was long gone, long forgotten, didn't mean anything. Just a movie that I did. No, no, it's more than that. And now you and I talking about Never Take Sweets, which really, really should be talked about and seen. Not so much talk about that scene. It definitely should be seen. Oh, I agree. It it, ha- it has to be seen. And there's many different Blu-ray versions out there. There's there. It's in a Hammer collection. It's in a, a, a two disc. It's it's out there readily available. It's it's inexpensive. You know, I think people should get it, watch it, and if your children are old enough and you think they're old enough, watch it with them and discuss this. So that way, this situation will never happen to them. Quite right. It would bring up that topic of conversation, wouldn't it? As long as it's not too scary. Let the parents see it first. See if they feel that they're. I mean, there are things that uh, in this day and age that kids see on TV, see on their uh, screens that I, I don't think they should see. Uh, and certainly with my young grandchildren, there are things that I would not let them see. But if the child is of an age or mentality that you think yes, they can cope with this, you've had the conversation prior to it, and you think this will this will show without it being too scary, too traumatic, then let them see it. That's the parent's choice. Yeah, it's the same thing with don't 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 talk to strange men. Um, people are like, oh, nobody uses a call box anymore. Well, it was updated to chat rooms and internet where people are contacting these people and, uh, and, and seducing them the same way in the movie, you know, through this thing. And people having, they're, you know, they go into like your your your, your the person who was playing your sister did, where they go into these fantasies. I was like, oh, I'll just do this, and it's going to be this perfect little thing, and uh, it's 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 still very real. Yes, yeah. Are, are you were you were you talking about the the phone box sequence in Don't Talk to Strange Men? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But just updated to a chat room I, or I think- to internet things. It's the same thing. Absolutely. It's a, it's a very, very dangerous. The internet is a wonderful tool, you know, and without it in the last two years, I wouldn't have done anything uh, really, but I've been teaching uh, my students now. I have drama students and I've been teaching them online. I've had to learn the technology because I was so against it. Well, it's far too much screen time. Don't let's do it. I've had, I've had to do it, but, it's limited, and I know it's a technical generate te- technological generation. That's the right word. Where 
you know, even even the grandchildren, you know, they they can work control, but we make sure that we are monitoring it. But sometimes, you know, once they get their phones and they've got, you know, their actual, it is worrying. You know, there isn't enough control by the powers that be that have all these things, and they should be, they should be more controlled. I, I, I'm fearful of that, I have to say. I'm fearful of that. Um, I I won't be. I, I know my daughter is concerned about her children, my grandchildren, and when they get to the age when they, oh, but we've got to have a phone. Everybody else has got a phone. Yes. But, you know, they should, say the powers that be should have more control over what, what, what is allowed on them. And the screens. Too easily available, aren't they? Too much availability. Yep, and it, it, it'll come down to um, as parents, um, educating them, the children, and that way if you're preparing for as best you can. And then when they reach that age of a teenagers and adulthood, you just got to hope that they make the correct decisions. Just like I'm sure you still worry about your son and daughter, even though they're beyond the young adulthood and stuff like that. Just like I worry about my children, you know, and they're all in their almost all of them are in their 20s you know you still as a parent you're always are worried about are you going to make those decisions and then you got to look back that i that i prepare them the best i could and i and you always hope you did yeah i think that's that's the key word isn't it prepare them make sure you prepare them i know when my my sons were growing up and they started to go what can you do you can't say no you can't go out Preparation, yeah, okay, you can, but I'm telling you, you know, they have to learn to make their own decisions. But if they have, if they have the, if they've been prepared for the worst, uh, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that, you know, you've always got to say, oh, this could happen, that could happen, this could happen. But prepare them and say, look, you know, not everybody out there is is kind. Not everybody out there is well-meaning. You you have to be you have to be aware that things can go wrong. So please be careful. And I, I, you know, it's kind of kind of we're talking on a somber note here, you know. It, but I think it's just that, that people know your movies are available. They're readily available. A lot, some of them are on YouTube. Some of them are, like we said, a Blu-ray or DVD purchase away. And and I hope you enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed being able to reminisce with. Um, on the show with me about some of the stuff that you did in the past. Oh, it's been really, really enjoyable. Thank you so much. It's been difficult for me because I, uh, having come out of lockdown, I think I said to you before we went on air that, you know, trying to remember back all those years can be difficult, but you have brought it out of me and helped me remember various things. I hope they are of interest to you and to people listening. So thanks very much. Well, thank you again. And um, listeners, thank you for listening in. And like I said, seek out the movies. They're there. And um, go to her webpage. I'll have it in the links below. And you can see the, the link, the credits, you know, and that kind of stuff. That that Because if you do Wikipedia, you're only going to see really the, the films. If you go to the webpage, you'll see the films, the TV, and the theater work. And, um, and, and enjoy. Thank you.
I hope you enjoyed the interview with Miss Faye. And if you have feedback you want to leave us, please leave it at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Um, let us know feedback from this episode, prior episodes, also in things that are like um, Apple Podcast or things like that. Feel free to give us a rating, you know, leave us feedback on there. It helps people find the show. So whatever podcast feed you're using, feel free to, if you want to take a minute, leave us some feedback there or give us a rating. I'm um, going to play a promo for Kevin Slick, who was on episode 88, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, about his new album that's coming out. That it's, I'm sorry, it's out, Coming Home. And um, just before I play the promo, and that's going to take us out of the show, I uh, just want to remind everybody that the next episode is going to be The Great Garrick. I'm going to be joined by Troy Howarth, and we're going to be continuing our James Whale retrospective series. We're getting near the end. And it's a wonderful conversation between the two of us, and I hope you enjoy it. And that'll be the episode that'll be coming out next. Everybody have a good day. And now, let's listen to a little bit about coming home. Hi, this is Kevin Slick, and you're listening to music from my album, Coming Home. If you like acoustic roots, folk music, I think you might enjoy this new album. The album is available on all the streaming platforms like Spotify and Tidal and other such ones. Uh, you can also download copies from Bandcamp or Apple Music and sources like that. And if you'd like to buy a physical copy, check out the store at kevinslick.com. Hope to see you sometime soon. 